Welcome to the Ramp Church Podcast. We are so honoured that you've joined us today and we pray that you will be encouraged and inspired by this week's message. If you'd like to know more about Ramp Church Manchester or would like to partner with us in giving, visit us over on our website, ramp.church forward slash mcr or find us on social media. Now let's head straight into this week's message. Let's dive into the Word. Let's dive into the Word. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter number 1. Acts chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. If you don't have a physical Bible, that's fine. Just pull it up digitally. And um, if you don't have a phone, um, why not? It's 2021. Uh, Kidding. It'll be on the screen. It'll be on the screen. So um, Acts chapter number 1, starting in... Verse number one. We read this. Um, we read this passage in January uh, for our vision series, but it came back in my heart again today for us um, in this this message. Let's read. Uh, Luke is writing this. Let's read verses one through five. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So. Luke was an early follower of Jesus. He wrote this book called Acts. He also wrote a book that was um, very uh, in a vein of humility named Luke uh, after himself. I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, so that's what he's referring to there, my first book. Until the day when he was taken up after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he'd chosen. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering By many proofs, say proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized, and then he's quoting himself, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So let me give you a little context for this. Jesus has lived his life. Then he died on the cross. Then he raised from the dead. And he spent 40 days revealing himself to people in his community. Later on in the Gospels, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we find out Paul says he revealed himself to, to over 500 people. So there are over 500 people that he revealed himself to. Um, Uh, as a physical body that had been raised from the dead. And Luke mentions that he revealed himself by by various proofs. And we know that to be the case because the Gospels even say Jesus invited them to test the authenticity of his aliveness. He asked them, come touch my body, come touch my hands, touch my side, Look, I'll eat in front of you even, you know. I think he's trying to make them realize I'm not a ghost. I'm not a figment of your imagination. There was a fish here. I cooked it, and then I ate it. Now the fish is gone. You see, it's in my physical body. Um, and I love Luke. I love the writer Luke because he's interested in historicity. He, he, he says in his first gospel, the gospel of Luke, that he wanted to write an account. He's, he gets a little cheeky because I think he's even comparing himself to the other gospel writers. I wanted to write a more orderly account for you guys. 
Because those guys, they pulled stories and they got them out of order sometimes because they weren't really concerned with the order that it happened in. And I am, Luke is trying to say. He's a physician, so we can kind of pretend. We can kind of read between the lines and go, maybe Luke was very ordered in his thinking. He took detailed notes. He did interviews. And he interviewed all these eyewitnesses. And then he puts together an orderly account. That's what we see from his first gospel. You know, it's, it's amazing when people look at the Bible, a common, a common indictment against the Bible is this. You can't trust this book because um, the books in here weren't decided what was going to be in it for centuries after Jesus. Have you heard this before, this indictment? You can't, you can't, you can't, it's not, you can't even trust it because people who had political agendas, they decided what's going to be in this book and, and, and we could, we can actually discuss that specific argument, but I'm not going to because I think it misses the most important point. The most important point is this, not who decided on the library of Scripture. The most important point is, is what actually is said in this text, did it actually happen the way it's said in this text? It's kind of like this. If someone found my journals a few centuries from now, first of all, Lord, help them if they find my journals because they're going to be depressed after a couple hours of reading my journals. Second, Second of all, um, they, they get my journals and then they don't figure out which year was which. And then, you know, a couple years later they decide, well, this is the final chronicle of Joe's journals. Okay. I'm, I, this is a strange intellectual exercise because there's nothing of substance in my journals. I promise. But let's just say that happened. And there's a lot of argument, you know, what year? No, I think you have the years out of alignment there. At the end of the day, the, the, the main thing is this. Is, are those actually Joe's authentic journals, right? And the way we judge the historicity of a document, ancient documents, there are several things, and the Bible passes all of those with flying colors. Can I just give you a couple? Can I just give you a couple just to, just to increase your confidence when I'm about to? This is a total rabbit trail. Is that okay? One is the Gospels started being written within 20 to 30 years of Jesus's life. Now, in a day where oral tradition was the predominant transmission of historical information, that's astoundingly soon. And why does it matter? You go, 20 years, that's a long time. A lot can change in 20 years. Not if someone claims to die and be raised from the dead. Imagine if Boris Johnson um, died and then someone claimed he raised from the dead. And then thousands of people believed it. Would 20 years matter in thwarting that claim? No, it doesn't matter. I mean, everybody's still alive. All 500 people are still alive. So if the, if the events that are claimed in the gospel didn't happen, there's no possible way they would have outlived the, the, the people who were alive. They wouldn't have lasted. They couldn't have lasted. They would have died in the water. There were many messianic figures that came and went. And came and went and came. So why would these stories continue on? Well, because they're true. That's why. There's another thing that, that historians, secular historians included, look at doc, ancient documents to figure out, are, are these true? They look to see, well, if they're made up, then the people who would maybe benefit from that false document, they're going to be painted in glowing colors. And the, the, the Gospels especially pass that because the disciples who were the future leaders of the church they look really bad in the Gospels. <laughs> Peter, who was the premier apostle after this book was written, he denied Jesus three times. 
Well, if he was trying to gain leadership after writing, writing the gospels, why would he have put that in there? Unless it was true. There's disparaging accounts of the future church leaders. If they made it up, there's no way they would have put that info in there. I want to leave parts of my life out. And I'm, you know what I mean? I'm not the apostle Peter. They put that in there because it happened. And they probably put it in there reluctantly. Like, please don't include that, Luke. Please leave it out. That's another thing. Right, can I just give you one more? One more. Okay, one more. Uh, the, the, first, the first people to witness Jesus' resurrection were women. It's clear every gospel mentions that. The, the only problem with that is women in that day, their testimony was not accepted as reliable in court. Legally, women could not testify in that testimony but be seen as reliable by courts. It was, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that's the way it was. Welcome to ancient Rome. They weren't accepted. So if, if the writers made up what was in this book, why would they have made women the original witnesses of the resurrection if they only knew that would hurt their case? The only answer is they didn't. That's actually what happened. And instead of make it up that, well, it was men, because that would help our case, they just kept it in there. Ladies, ladies, men. And not only that, the ladies came back saying, he's risen, he's risen, and the disciples were like, nah, no, nah, he's not. That doesn't happen. People don't raise from the dead. And they're like, no, nah, we were there. We saw it, he's gone. We can trust in what's written in this. That's one of the reasons I love Luke. Rabbit trail officially over. Thank you for your time. Ladies and gents. The other thing I love um, in these first opening few verses uh, is this. Luke says in his first book, he dealt with all that Jesus began. Say began. Began to do and teach. The problem is Luke's, original, Luke's first gospel was the entirety of Jesus' ministry. Not just what Jesus began to do. But if the first volume was about what Jesus began to do, then the second volume must be about what Jesus continued to do, right? But Jesus leaves in the first chapter of the second volume, in the first chapter of Acts. So the point is, Jesus' ministry doesn't stop with Jesus. Jesus' ministry continues through the life of the church. If you're wondering, if you're sitting here today wondering, what is the point of all of this? What's the point of Ramp Church? What's the point of gathering? What's, why are, why are uh, churches all over the world gathering today? What is it that draws us all together? This, th- this is the heart of it. We feel that Jesus wants to continue doing and teaching in our cities, and we want to be a part. Come on, Ramp Church. Do you see that? Jesus is continuing to act and to teach, to show love and to show grace. And he wants to do it through you. He wants to do it through me. All that Jesus began to do and teach, the ministry of Jesus is ongoing and it's working through your life and through my life. And look at this next verse. I love this. This is my last thought. Colossians 1.24, Paul says this. Now I rejoice in my suffering... Paul, you're another level. I've never said that. I rejoice in my suffering. Did you catch that? For your sake and in my flesh, I'm filling up. Look at this strange statement. What is lacking in Christ's affliction? Paul's saying Jesus' sacrifice, there's something about that that's lacking. 
Anybody's mind spinning? For the sake of his body, that's us, the church, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. That's our job, Ramp Church. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Paul doesn't mean something is lacking in the sufficiency of Jesus' death. Paul means something is lacking in its distribution. Guess who's called to continue to steward the distribution of of Christ's sacrifice on the cross? You and me. We're meant to do exactly what Paul said. We're meant to, to, through our lives, he calls the suffering of, let, let, me, let, me, let me break it into modern day, of lay down love for our city. We're meant to make up in the distribution and the application of what lacked in Christ's suffering. Christ died, but it hasn't reached every corner of our city yet. That's up to you and me. That's the point of Ram Church. That's the point of Ram Church. That was just my intro, folks. That was my intro. There's actually the title of my message right here. Ready to wait? You guys ready to wait? Does anybody, is there a word you hate more than wait? Wait, excuse me, wait, sir. Oh, wait. I hate that. I hate that. Let's get into scripture together. Ready to wait. You know, Jesus' instructions to the apostles in Acts chapter 1 that we just read, not only, does, um, not only are, are they the beginning of what, uh, the continuation of what he began to do and teach, but he also says, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait for what I've promised. I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait. Anybody felt like you've been in a waiting season? Anybody's it just me? And I, I don't mean just waiting on a venue. I don't mean just, I don't mean just waiting on lockdown to lift. That's everybody's been waiting on that, right? There's just sometimes seasons where we're in between what God, but between God making a promise and us holding the promise. Have you been there before? Some of you are waiting on the promise of of a relationship. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a marriage relationship. There's a promise that's been given to you. You know God's spoken to you and you're waiting and you're being faithful and you're doing all you know to do and you're continuing to keep, keep yourself in God's way and you're waiting in a waiting period. Some of you are waiting on a home. You're like, I know God, I'm not meant to be transient. Um, God wants me to be planted somewhere. Some of you are waiting on a job or a career. It's like, this is not the, the space I'm meant to be in. I'm waiting. Some of you are waiting on maybe a ministry opportunity that you know God's opened up. I know God's promised that there's a door opening up for me and I'm in a waiting period. All of us have seasons of waiting. And I just want to just really be a voice of encouragement right here to you, Ramp Church. This won't be your last season of waiting. And that's why I want to call this message ready to wait because as the people of God, we need to have a readiness to enter into waiting seasons because waiting seasons have purpose beyond just 
creating patience in us, our favorite characteristic. They have, they have purpose deeper than just patience. And I want to talk about three things that waiting seasons do in us, and then I want to end with teaching you something incredible that Jesus did for us. The first thing waiting seasons do for us is this. Waiting creates space to process where you've been. Waiting creates space to process where you've been. A few weeks ago, we talked about Exodus, where the children of, and we're talking about looking forward, moving forward. The children of Israel are coming out of Egypt. They get stuck against the Red Sea and Egypt's on their tails. And now they're going, what, what, do, I ha- what, what do I do? And God says, move forward. Well, then they spend 40 years in the wilderness, a waiting season. But sometimes what happened to you is so significant that God actually has to put you in a season to process the pain and the disappointment and the trauma. In many ways, if I can just get real to the season we're in right now, we're coming out of one of those seasons, Ram Church. I, I love vision. I love talking about vision. I could talk about vision all the time. That's where I could live. And there's a tendency for me in these spaces to just vision, 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 vision. But, but sometimes we need to wait. We need to stop. We need to remember where we've been, what we've lost. My hopes that I had to kind of push to the side, my expectations for 2020 or 2021 that I had to put on hold. And we need to stop and go back. If, if we're not intentional about creating spray, space to process pain, loss, and disappointment, it will force its way to the surface. Uh, generally, if we don't stop, if we don't create space to process pain, we choose one of two other options. We either ignore it, we act like it didn't happen, we deny it, or we live in it. You either live in the past or I deny the past. But seasons of waiting sometimes are specifically and intentionally designed by God to give us space to process the past. Without space, we create a series of ungrieved losses. Ungrieved Losses. Waiting gives us time and space to express and process pain without it causing additional damage and pain to ourselves and others by coming out in an unsafe time and place. Look what Brene Brown says about this. When we deny our stories and disengage from tough emotions, they don't go away. They don't go away. Instead, they own us. They define us. Our job is not to deny the story, but to defy the ending. To rise strong, recognize our story, and rumble with the truth until we get to a place where we think, yes, this is what happened, this is my truth, and I will choose how this story ends. Look what Isaiah teaches us about this in Isaiah 43. It's actually on the wall right over there, isn't it? Isaiah 43, 18 and 19. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Now that that word remember, maybe in your Bible it says uh, forget. Don't don't forget. 
Uh, remember not. It, actually, it would say forget the former things. But that doesn't just mean don't remember it. That, that word remember is the Hebrew word zakar. And it doesn't just mean to remember. It also means to set up a memorial. What it's saying is, it's not trying to get you to deny what's happened. Don't live in it. Don't set up a memorial where you, you, you base your entire future around something that was. And then he ties it to the new thing that God's doing. Watch, watch what Isaiah continues. Remember not, so don't set up a memorial around the former thing, nor consider the things of old. Behold, why? In other words, why? Because I'm doing a new thing. And if you're worshiping at the memorial of what I did, you will miss the new thing that I want to do. So we're called as the people of God not to deny it and just move into the new thing. I promise, like Brene Brown said, it'll come back. It'll own you. But also, we don't set up a memorial in it and live there and just walk around the old thing. Just keep walking. I would move on to a new relationship, but that last one... It hurts so bad. And nobody can live up to your expectations for relationships because they have to solve your past relationships' problems and their problem. You're asking them to solve someone else's problem? Because you set up a memorial around the old thing. Some of us are coming into new church families. God called us into this community. And you're judging everything that's happened based on your experiences in the past. That's not finding a new thing. That's setting up a memorial around the old thing and going, well, if they don't fix the problem that my old church had, I'm sorry, if you're looking for a a, a problem-free church, you have found the wrong place. You have found the wrong place. I've, I've said this before. If I haven't offended you yet, you just haven't known me long enough. I'm human. This is gonna happen. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't want to. That's not my intention. But the best of us, our actions don't line up with our intentions often, right? It's, I, don't, I don't want that to happen, but it's human. We're humans. So what you found here is a room full of humans. Sorry to disappoint. Just a room full of humans. We can't set up memorials around the past. and just give, Why? Because God's saying, behold, I do a new thing. And not, the new thing isn't just a new flashy thing. Look at this. It's something that happens where, where fruit cannot happen. Now it springs forth. Don't you perceive it? Why is the prophet saying that? Because if you're setting up memorials around the past, you cannot perceive the future. If you are, if you are, if you are rotating your entire life around something that happened to you then, you will never perceive the new thing that God is doing. He says it can even spring forth in the desert. I'll make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Number one, waiting creates space to process where you've been. Number two, waiting breaks old cycles and habits. Waiting breaks old cycles and habits. Sometimes God puts you in seasons of waiting because he wants to break some old cycles and patterns that you have. And I promise when Israel moved out into the wilderness, there were some things that they were used to when they lived in Egypt, they just couldn't do anymore. I mean, I have to learn a whole new way to live. Anybody found that way over the past 16 months? I gotta figure out a whole new way to live. I hope we use those as opportunities to break old cycles and habits, right? Look at one of my favorite verses right here in Romans 12 too. 
Don't conform to the pattern of this world, the habits, the cycles of the world around us, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Um, This is a principle that I think is key, but um, I want to teach you today. You form habits, and then habits form you. Why does God bring us into waiting seasons to break cycles and habits? Because there are habits that you form that are forming you, and you you don't know how to break them. Well, God's going to put you in a season of waiting so that you can create new patterns of life. You form habits, and then habits form you. But here's the, here's the beautiful thing about that. You can, you can create new ones. That's what seasons of waiting are for. That's what seasons of waiting are for. I love what my friend James Aladdin says about Israel's journey. God had to get Israel out of Egypt so that he could get Egypt out of Israel. What's he talking about there? There was something in Israel that was more Egyptian than the place that they lived. And he had to bring them into a season of waiting for the promise because it broke Egypt out of them. If there's, do you know what God wants to do in this new season for us? He wants to put us into new patterns, Ramp Church, that we find sources of life that we have never found before waiting seasons break old cycles and habits. And number three, there are many things waiting seasons do, but the third, the, the last one we're going to talk about today is this. Waiting reconnects you to your need for God. Waiting reconnects you to your need for God. When I can't make it happen without God, it reminds me how much I need Him. Ancient Israel's story shows this. This is the book of Judges. If you're wondering what your and my nature is really like, just read the book of Judges. It's a thoroughly depressing book. It shows Israel when everything's going awesome, they leave God. And when everything's going to pot, they cry out to God and say, hey God, come help us. And then he helps them. And everything gets awesome, and then they leave God behind. Do you know even globally, you would think that the places globally, the nations and societies globally, with the the highest population of faith-based people, would be the wealthiest nations on earth, because you think, we have everything we need. God, you're so awesome! But do you know globally the places with the highest population of, of, of people with lives of faith are the poorest places on earth? Why? Because they can't get away from it. There must be something more than this. They can't, they, they, it, 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 it's going to take God to come fix this mess. They're constantly faced with their need for God. You'd think that here in the West, we're like, everything, I mean, we don't, we don't have needs for anything. Our whole lives are spent trying to get what we want, right? Not surviving, like, I want that car. I want that house. I want to live on that street. Not survival. You think we would, we would turn that all to God? We don't. It's the poorest places on earth. There's something about human nature. Why is it important in seasons of waiting because it forces us to recognize our need for God. Look at this verse. Matthew 5, Jesus taught this. God blesses those who are poor. Maybe your translation says the poor in spirit. And God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. He says theirs is the kingdom 
of heaven. I wish I could take you into Deuteronomy 8. You can study that on your own. It's one of my favorite chapters about God instructing Israel. When you go into the land that I've promised you, don't forget me. Why? Because waiting seasons reconnect us to our need for God. Look at Isaiah 25, verse 9. It will be said on that day, this is our God. We have waited for him. This is, I think, our story, Ramp Church. This is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is a people who have waited on God and seen him come through. Seen him come through. Here's where I want to close, Ram Church, with this question. Where does our, where does our ability to wait come from? Anybody find it hard to wait? I hate waiting. I hate waiting. I don't like it. I want what I want. I want it now. Thank you, Amazon Prime. Now. I like that. Every time, every time Manchester adds a new Amazon warehouse, I'm like, yes. How close is it to my house? Because three hours is not soon enough. I want two-hour delivery. Thank you, Amazon Prime. Now, I don't, we don't like waiting. Where does our power to wait come from? I want to take you into a beautiful chapter. Turn with me to, to Isaiah 30. I'm going to read just two verses. Isaiah 30, verse number 18. Do you know the Lord waits? You and I don't just wait. He waits. Look what it says right here in verse 18. Therefore, the Lord waits. He waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. Why is he waiting to be gracious to you? Why is he waiting to show you mercy? This next line tells us, For the Lord is a God of justice. In other words, if he acted how you and I deserve right now in this moment, it wouldn't be mercy. (laughs) It wouldn't be mercy. So what does he do? He waits. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet for for his second coming? The New Testament tells us. Because he's waiting for as many people to turn to him as possible. Look what it says. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. This is a poetic way to say, They will be in the city of God. In the the presence of God. The habitation of God. You shall weep no more. God will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. What is God waiting on to show mercy? The sound of your cry, the sound of my cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. As soon as he hears your cry, he answers you. What is God waiting on? He's waiting on the cry from your heart and from my heart. He's waiting because he's committed to show mercy to us. He's a God of justice. He can't deny his justice, but he's committed to mercy. He's committed to it. So what is he waiting on? Where does our power to wait come from on what God's doing? Because we realize if it was not for the waiting heart of God, 
If it was not for the patient heart of God who was waiting on my behalf, I know that mercy would not be my portion. Because I don't know about you, but I, I know all the thousands of ways that I've been, I, I personally do not deserve to be a child of God. But because God waits, because he's a God who waits for us, we can be a people who waits for him. There is a fly who is loving this location on stage right now. Ben, would you just come? Wherever you're at, just go ahead and come forward. If you're in a waiting season, I just want to read a verse over you that that I feel for you. I actually got this verse this week. Uh, Babs Bray, if you're watching, I got this verse and I sent this to you. Um, Babs has gotten some, uh, what could be discouraging news about her journey in health. And she got uh, not the best report from the doctor. And she messaged me. And Babs, I got this verse for you. I sent it to you. And I hope you're okay with me sharing it with Ramp Church. But she's in a waiting season right now. So she comes to your mind, keep her in prayer. But look at this, Psalms 139, verses 7 through 12. This is what the psalmist says. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Those are obviously rhetorical questions. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night all around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. If you're in a season of waiting where, the, where everything seems dark, I can, I can assure you, it's not dark to him. He sees with perfect clarity where you are, where you've been, where you're going, everything you need to get to the future. It isn't dark to him. Surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. When you're waiting in a season of waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises, it may be dark to you, but God is using the darkness to process you because it's not dark to Him. He sees it all. He sees where you've been. He sees where you are. He sees where you're going. And He promises, like we sang earlier, no matter the mountain or the valley, He is there. His word is true. Would you stand to your feet as we close?